This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. <laughs> They're dogs! And they're playing poker! <laughs> Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and... Oh, brain freeze okay you can join in with us because today is 7-eleven day and all the slurpees you can drink are on us offer valid only at participating locations and assumes customer only takes the maximum number of slurpees allowed by local state and federal law and no more than that location will give you because stacking benjamins is not made of money and has no budget to buy you a slurpee and also in the basement here to talk about slashing risk with your investments we welcome chris cook And speaking of icy, in our headline segment, we'll hear from a debt collector. Are they really as icy and mean and nasty as people think? Of course they are. I mean, of course, we'll still throw out the Haven lifeline to Mike, who just cashed in a life insurance policy and is wondering what to do with the difference. And we'll be certain to feature, all in caps, my amazing trivia. And now... Two guys who we call the Slim Jim and Hostess Cupcake of this podcast. You get to decide who's who. Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. OG's totally the cupcake. I am definitely not the Slim Jim. You're like the pork rind of the show. How do you find the happy middle ground? I don't know what that is, but that's me. Hey, welcome to Hump Day on the Stacky Benjamin Show, or better yet, Free Slurpee Day. I like how Doug just gives everybody a free Slurpee as long as it's what a nice guy, right? He just he walked into every Seven Eleven. He sent a he sent a note to Seven Eleven corporate and said, "You know what? Today, 
every Slurpee's on me. Let me give you my credit card. All of our listeners get free Slurpees. I dare you to walk into a 7-Eleven today and as you're checking out, just say, hey, by the way, thank Doug for this. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and see what they say. They used to allow the, uh, you know, people would bring in like a big vat so they could fill up the Slurpee, but now they now they max it out because too many people took advantage of a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Only so many at participating locations, sadly. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get all your friends in on the DLOG. You should definitely tell every friend you've got. That it's like the lottery, basically. If all of you, if all of your friends play, somebody's eventually going to win, right? Much, Isn't that how that works? Much more likely you, to get brain freeze. You guys all go to 7-Eleven at the same time. Someone's going to get a free Slurpee. So go Slack all your friends. Thanks to Slack, by the way, for supporting Stacky Benjamin. Slack's a collaboration hub for work that makes sure the right people in your team are always in the loop, like on free Slurpee Day. And key information is always at their fingertips, like what your favorite flavor is. Coke. Learn more at slack.com. We're also supported by Magnify Money, where the average person saves $450. You comparison shop the rest of your life. Why don't you comparison shop those financial tools you use every day? When my kids first got their credit card, what did we do? We went right immediately to Magnify Money and read their blog post on establishing credit together. And then we applied for their first cards together. And now happily, they are kids with not only great credit, but they pay down their credit cards every month completely. Such a, such a sweet bedtime story. You tuck your kids in at night and you read them a blog post about establishing good credit behavior. Once upon a time, there was a man with a Visa card. These rewards pay too little. These rewards pay too much. There's, <laughs> it's got to be a scam. These rewards are just right. <laughs> and the kids, interest rate is too high. The kids are asleep. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnified money for that. We're going to talk about slashing your risk in your portfolio with Chris Cook. He's got an interesting new book out about that and definitely wanted to have him on to talk about that topic. But first, we got some headlines. So let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Investment News. Bruce Kelly wrote this piece. UBS, the brokerage firm, UBS, to pay $4.3 million in Puerto Rico bond claim. UBS Financial Services has lost another multi-million dollar FINRA arbitration award stemming from the sale of individual Puerto Rico bonds and closed-end funds. Is this like the third or fourth scammer we've seen around the whole horrible situation in Puerto Rico? Well, I don't know that this is a scam in as much as well, they probably didn't price them correctly or something. Yeah. According to the arbitration award, which was decided last Friday by a three-person financial industry regulatory authority, Inc. dispute resolution panel, the claimants, the family and relatives of Jacobo and Raquel Bender, were awarded close to $4.3 million in compensatory damages and cost. Mr. Bender and his wife alleged negligence, negligent supervision, fraud, and other charges in their claim. The family invested in Puerto Rico bonds, including those underwritten by UBS, according to the award, as well as proprietary closed-end funds that invested predominantly in Puerto Rico bonds. The family's broker was Ramon Almonte, said the family's lawyer, Jeffrey Arez. According to his broker check report, get this, Mr. Almonte has 183, quote, disclosures in his work history, the overwhelming majority of which stem from sales of Puerto Rico bonds. How is this guy still working? 
The market for Puerto Rico's 70 billion in muni debt bottomed out over the summer of 2013 after Detroit filed for bankruptcy that July. Puerto Rico has been struggling to stave off a widespread default ever since. The better family sought between 1 million and 5 million in damages according to the award, so they came in at the top end of that. And I guess you're right. That was very unfair of me to say it was a scam because maybe the broker thought, "Hey, this is going to turn around." And then he doubled down. Well, there's yeah, there's two sides to this, right? I mean, when you buy distressed debt, it kind of depends on when it was purchased, right? If you buy a uh, high yield, right? Everybody likes that sound. I'm going to go buy some high yield fixed income. If I'm going to buy some junk bonds, is another way of saying that. It's so funny how you can take the term junk bonds and you can see the guys, they're out at lunch. They're like, we can't move this crap. Bill, what are we going to do? And Judy- it so reminds me of a movie. I can't remember the movie, but I saw it when I was a kid. The actors are talking and one of the guys goes, uh, so how's business in the junk bond business? It isn't. He says, it actually isn't that one. I think I know what you're talking about. Or, or, or is it junk bonds? Because I'm thinking about that movie. Thank you for smoking. Where you no, it's not that one. I've never seen that. Oh, but then well, he goes, he goes, it's called high yield bonds. I don't call yours junk upholstery because <laughs> he's like in the upholstery business or something. You know, I'm thinking that about in the on one. Me. Thank you for smoking. It's the guy from tobacco, the guy from firearms and somebody from uh, I don't remember the other one, a woman who sells something else that's like, uh, you know, stuff that is. Kind of vice, yeah. yes, yes, kind of a vice, and they and they get together and they have drinks and they're like, "How was your day?" Oh, well, we went to court again, telling people that smoking is not dangerous at all. You know, was, they're all like, giggling. Yeah. 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 So it all depends on these, you know, on these bonds when you bought them, right? I mean, if you bought them and you were getting all this yield, that's the trade-off is the volatility, and probably the broker wasn't totally upfront with the volatility component of it. Right. I mean, when you're trying to quote, win an account and you say, Hey, I've got this cool thing that's going to uh, pay you 10% dividends every year, 10% interest. Uh, you might forget to mention the part where it could also lose half its value. Telling here is that UBS fought this hard. And sometimes, as you know, firms will just roll over, especially if the broker has, how many did I say? 173, yeah, a 183 disclosures on his work history and his broker check report. That's just a ton. But but they fought it hard. And here is the UBS statement. While we respectfully disagree with this decision, it's important to note the claimants were awarded less than they sought. Well, barely. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was damn near the top. We end. win if you look at it. <laughs> Perhaps because for over 20 years, Puerto Rico bonds provided steady and substantial returns, also coupled with extraordinary tax advantages available only to Puerto Rico residents, UBS spokesperson Maya Dillon wrote in an email. UBS, by the way, has lost a handful of these. People want their cake and they want to eat it too, but you got to know what the other side of the coin is, right? When we talk about investment allocation or asset allocation, the number one performing area over a really long period of time is small company value. You get 13.5% in that over the last 100 years. Put all my money there, cries the audience, right? And then you go, well, but hold on. Here's the other side of that coin. you got to be okay with a minus 70% return every so often. Oh, yeah, not okay with that. Yeah, about that. I think that's the important thing, right? And that's the difference between being a broker and being an advisor. 
this young man's job was to sell UBS's products, right? I mean, that's what being a broker is, is sell our stuff to these customers. Proprietary and I, funds and bonds that they'd underwritten. And I think that's also telling why you see somebody with a hundred and some odd disclosures still working, right? Because he was a good salesperson. <laughs> he was selling our stuff. And every so often he gets slapped and we get slapped and we just march on, right? Well, like uh, uh, Nick Clements from Magnify Money said when he's been on, he used to work in the banking industry. They had a line item in their budget that was, I don't remember how he characterized it, was basically when they get their hand slapped, it's part of the budget. They know they're going to get hit. They're cheating on purpose. They know they're going to get hit. Well, think about the revenue of UBS and all these other brokers, right? Yeah. I mean, a $4 million judgment is the second decimal point in the rounding. Yeah. And I want to be know. clear. I'm not saying that UBS third is, decimal point, probably that UBS has a, I don't, I don't have it. I don't know the bro that UBS no, 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 not at all. has a just industry. Yes. The brokerage industry. Yes. There's something else going on here too, that I worry about. And that is based on the UBS spokesperson's Miss Dillon's response. It seems like these people were Puerto Rico residents because she goes into the extraordinary tax advantages available only to Puerto Rico residents. I saw this when I was in Detroit, OG. When you're close to it, you live in Puerto Rico. You're like, you know what? It's going to get better. I know it's going to get better. I live here. I know these people. I know the situation's going to get better. So yeah. when, when I was in Detroit, I thought there's no way General Motors is going to go bankrupt. How would, right. how would Delphi Automotive go bankrupt? That, nobody's going to let Delphi go bankrupt. Nobody's going to do it. In fact, there was a Wall Street analyst the day before Delphi went bankrupt that I was pointing to. I was a financial advisor in Detroit. I was pointing to going, see, look at Delphi's not going to go bankrupt. This, this Even this guy says so. This report came out 24 hours later, they're bankrupt. <laughs> 24 hours later. You can be too close is my point. Yeah. Think about how close you are to the investment. Sometimes it makes sense to have a little, be a little bit removed. Our second piece comes to us from Yahoo Finance. I thought this was really interesting. This is Confessions of a Debt Collector by Alyssa Pry. Uh, you know, debt collectors have just this absolutely stellar reputation and people love pillars them. of the society. Go hug your debt collector. So you put on your business card, right? Remember that story about a year ago, we had uh, Dr. Josh Larson on uh, talking about the history of debt collection yeah, and, and about the early days and people hated debt collectors because they would just go after people they hated. I, and so they, that's how they created these standards, right? Of you have a credit score now. They can't say, well, I don't like OG, so I'm going to start talking about OG's family and things that uh, OG and his spouse do after work that, that people don't like. I mean, that was in people's debt record that they'd send out to people. Nice. They, they would send this stuff out. But so debt collectors have a long history of not being liked. I'm going to read a little bit from this piece and then we'll talk about it. If a business has debt and doesn't pay a debt collection agency, you'll be on the hunt to track the money down. That's where Dean Kaplan comes in as CEO of the Kaplan Group, a commercial collections agency that deals with business debt. His company has collected tens of millions of dollars to return to their clients. Quote, we're very motivated to collect the money, Kaplan says. If somebody's business got into so much debt that they have to go out of business, then I want that to happen because otherwise they're going to take advantage of more people who keep doing business with them. If Kaplan sounds tough, it's because he worked in debt collection for 17 years. 
before taking the business over from a family member. He owns several manufacturing and consulting companies, and his outside perspective helped change his own misconceptions about the industry. Quote, when I first heard about it, I was concerned because I thought collectors were mean, angry, nasty people trying to get money from people who didn't have it, he says. But what I saw was that we solve a business problem. But not all those stereotypes are unfounded, Kaplan says. In our industry, it's like anything else. There's a full spectrum of people in it, a full spectrum of approaches, he says. There are agencies that are very aggressive with their approaches, and that's how they train their collectors. They may follow the law, but they're still extremely aggressive. For Kaplan's firm, that approach doesn't fly. Quote, those who have been at it for a while, they understand being aggressive isn't necessarily the right way to go. He says, working with people is the way to get it done. But I want to go back to the top of this article, and we'll link to this in our show notes at Stacky Benjamins, because it's really interesting to get the other side of the debt collection story. But if a business needs to go out of business because they took on so much debt, I want that to happen because otherwise they're going to take advantage of more people who keep doing business with them. I like that. I mean, I cerebrally get that. Why am I, if this person can't pay debt to person A, why am I going to let them go take on more debt from person B? You know what? You got to go out of business. You clearly are not the right person for this. Let's call it a day and, uh, and close up shop. I can see both sides of this, right? And I guess thinking about it in terms of a debt collector as opposed to being in debt, right? Because there's a difference, right? Having tons of liabilities but still making payments on them, you're not going to interface with a debt collector at that point. You know, what he's talking about is people being so far in debt that you're not paying anybody anymore. Three months, six which, months, nine months, 12 yeah, months. Yeah, in which case you're, you know, you're, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul and, and, you know, yeah, you're continuing to do business with somebody else, right, who doesn't know that they're not going to get paid either. Because that's basically what he's saying is uh, let's shut you down so that you don't have to ruin somebody else. Because when you're not paying your bill, even though you look at that and go, well, that's Visa, Right. I'm just not paying Visa to heck with them. They've got tons of money. But that could also be the local roofer and all of that snowballs pretty quickly. Right. If you don't pay your materials bill, you know, so he's a necessary part of the system. He's the cleanse. Yeah. <laughs> he's the juice cleanse of finance. <laughs> That's why you don't pay anybody for three months. The, the three day juice cleanse. <laughs> The 90-day the juice cleanse, the 90-day debt cleanse. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine that? Oh. A 90-day juice cleanse? You can barely get through a two-hour juice cleanse. But I think it's... it's so he's got to be firm, right? Because these folks are uh, in denial. Is that kind of what... Is that? He talks about how some of these businesses, some of these people, they're actively not trying to pay their bills. And because of that, hey, if you got to go out of business, because people will say, hey, you're going to put me out of business. Okay. Sorry. Yes. That's the plan. Yes. I am probably going to put you out of business because I'll collect as much for this person and then you won't borrow from somebody else. Somehow you'll learn the lesson, right? I mean, it was a very difficult time for me early in my career. And I've talked about this widely before when I had debt collectors calling me all the time. I didn't make any money for a year trying to feed a family for on no money. So I was this person he was calling. Right. And I, I was very, very close yeah, but you weren't actively trying to be a jack wagon, right? You had an, a series of unfortunate things that snowballed and and, and I, you were trying to get out of it. You were actively working to get out of it where you weren't burying your head in the sand going. Yes, I was trying to actively get out of it and hold responsibility. And what's funny yeah. is, and partly on debts that 
I still dispute that I actually owed, but okay. You know what? Yeah. It was my stupidity. And so because I didn't understand how the game was played, I'll go ahead and pay that. And we'll call it a dumb tax, right? We'll call it a lesson. And so for me, going through that process and having somebody like this Kaplan guy on the other end, I mean, that has shaped my life. And now you talk about a guy and handling money. It's a whole different world for me because I learned from more gun shy. Yeah, I learned from that process, man. I don't. I Not don't me. Ever... I'm all about uh, reload the chambers every every seven years. <laughs> Load them up, wipe them out. Load them yes. up and wipe them down. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, geez, always writing a book, and he's always on chapter eleven. Hey, oh, that's not true. No, stop spreading false rumors. You were talking about the uh, moral part of debt, right? Like the hey, I borrowed this, and I should pay it back, even though there's you know, there are other options available to you, right? Like, you know, you kind of jokingly say bankruptcy, but that's an option for some people. And I remember the first house that we bought, we bought in, um, I don't know, maybe 2004 or so, kind of peak housing time. And then the house market crashed and our house was worth 35 or 40% of what we paid for it. And I was watching my neighbors just walk away from their houses because we, we built in a new sub and I'm, talking to my neighbor, he says, oh yeah, this thing's worth 30 cents on the dollar. I'm just going to stop paying because it's going to take them a year to get me out of here because the foreclosures are just piling up across the country. It's going to take them a year to get me out of here. Meanwhile, I can save all that money that I'm paying in mortgage. And so yeah, it stings my credit for a couple of years, but big deal. And I remember thinking just momentarily, like, I wonder if that's the answer, right? Because it was, you see it going on around you. And why should I have to pay this $400,000 mortgage when the house is only worth 180 now, you know? And of course, you know, we stuck with it and the housing market rebounded and that sort of thing. But I think when it comes to debt, it's also important to, you know, remember that you're responsible for that. And like you demonstrated, and, and certainly we have in our lives as well, Hey, if you got kind of in over your head because of some silly behavior, now it's time to take it on the chin and buckle down and make it right. I want to talk too about the other side of the story, which is a lot of the time you'll be approached by some of these debt collectors. If you're somebody who's in this situation and they are scammers. And in fact, uh, Mr. Kaplan here says this at the bottom of the piece. One of the problems our industry faces, it's ripe for scammers. They're really good, and they come off as if they know what they're doing, Kaplan warns. If you get contacted by a debt collector, write down all the information because you want to make sure it's legitimate, then check them out. Check it out online. Make sure that who you're dealing with, who they say they are, and that they are licensed, he says. Understand who is on the other side of your phone. I think that's a huge, huge point he makes right there. There's a lot of resources online as you're if you're struggling with this, my favorite website for all of this is uh, credit boards. I mean, gosh, there must be a hundred thousand members, maybe millions. I, I don't know, but there's, there's so many posts about how to deal with this in a professional way, right? How do you deal with somebody who is a little over the top in terms of their enthusiasm for their job? How do you check people out, like you said, to make sure that they're who they say they are? What's the best way to work through your debt and still pay it off and benefit you? You know, because it's one thing to write a check and go, okay, I, you know, I owed a hundred dollars to my cable bill and they sent it to collection and you know, whatever, and you pay the hundred dollars. 
but you also want to make sure that you're not missing any other opportunities. Like how do you make that help your credit score and all that sort of stuff? And there's tons of resources on how to do that. Awesome. And we'll link to some of those on our show notes at stackybenjamins.com. And I think our that's our first, probably our biggest lesson. We should have just ended right there. But our second lesson to go back to the first piece, buying individual high yield securities in distressed locations might not go as well as you hope. Chris Cook, upstairs talking to mom. He is a strong proponent of improving investment outcomes by applying scientific fundamentals. It's why we haven't talked about the science of investing in a little bit. And Chris Cook is that guy. He's the president and founder of Beacon Capital Management in Dayton, Ohio, serving financial advisors and institutional investors nationwide. Wealth and Finance International called Beacon one of the most innovative advisory firms in the country. You're about to hear about slashing your retirement risk and slashing your risk in your portfolio. Let's say hello to Chris Cook. And coming down the stairs, Chris, man, how you doing? I'm great. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So you don't like, you're not a big fan of traditional retirement strategies, traditional investment strategies. Why not? Well, to tell you the truth is they don't work anymore. You know, there's too much volatility in the uh, markets out there and investors that buy into this normal buy and hold. I'm going to have 60% of my money in the S&P 500, 40% in bonds. They can't take that volatility because, you know, most people that are hitting retirement nowadays, they've already experienced two bear markets. Uh, they've got the 2000 market. The market dropped about 50%. Then they got hit another 50 plus percent in 2008. And the net result is they didn't make any money during that time. But you look at years like last year, though, Chris, I mean, last year was very, very low volatility. Was that just an anomaly? It was really. And we're starting to pay the price for it this year. Yeah. Yeah. We've had, uh, you know, as far as the way we measure volatility in the market, it's it's all about how many days does the market drop by 2%. You know, the 2% is kind of defined by the world as that's a bad day in the market. And that number has been rising for the last 50 years. It's not anything new. It just continues to happen. And we continue to see that trend. And last year was definitely a dip in that number. You didn't see hardly any. I think there were about five for the year. But this year, we're starting to, to kind of make up for it. So it's regression back to the mean. Yeah, we're seeing some real bouncing around. And people have been calling for the sky to start falling for a number of years. But this year, the number of articles saying the sky's falling is, is, mm-hmm. is now through the roof. Where, where do people get it wrong when it comes to traditional? Because you talk about traditional investing. But as you know, you see all kinds of people, Chris. There's people investing in all different ways. What are some of the moves people make that don't work? I think the biggest mistake most people make is chasing what's hot. There's always something that's going to be cool, and that's what people want. You know, in some cases, you may hear about gold making all kinds of money. They'll jump on the gold bandwagon. You know, that happened in 2008 when the rest of the world and the markets were falling on its head. Gold was hot. It's a, it was a savior. Problem is, you kept hearing all the commercials for three years after that, and people kept <laughs> piling money in there. You know, it happened again. You know, in the late 90s, anything that was dot com, people piled money into it. 
and they paid the price for it. Uh, we saw house flipping, you know, in the mid two thousands, and you know, and then the the housing you know crisis hit, and that blew up, you know. So by the time you hear something is super hot and you can't miss, run. Don't I'm, go that way. I'm laughing, by the way, when you said gold, because <laughs> gold's an asset class I pick on a lot too. But I saw one recently, you're going to love this, on silver. And it shows this mm-hmm. chart that looks awesome. But when you really look at it, what it shows, Chris, is it shows silver going down and down and down in value until mm-hmm. today. And then it shows like this line up, which is where they're saying it's going to go now. I'm like, I've had all this down in silver, but the second I start investing in it, things are going to turn around for me. And now it's going to be this phenomenal, phenomenal thing. It's like Mm -hmm. dogs and ponies and smoke and mirrors all together at the same time. You're right. You talk about this idea, which I'm fascinated with, uh, called the new ROI. What is the new ROI for investors? You know, ROI is return on investment, and the new ROI is reliability of income. So most investment plans out there have been built around accumulation, people saving money for retirement. And because our industry as a whole, we go where the biggest block of people are, and it's the baby boomers. So we follow them. You know, we're just like, you know, Baby boomers, when they they went into grade school, we built a bazillion, you know, schools for them, you know, and then, you know, we had all kinds of hospitals now. And, you know, we just chased the baby boomers and the finance industry isn't any different. So it was all about saving money. So we built every investment program for that purpose. And it was return on investment. Now they need to take money out. We've got 10,000 baby boomers retiring every single year. So now it's about them not saving any money, not putting money in. It's about taking money out. And the greatest fear the baby boomers have is running out of money. So we need to create a reliable income stream for them. I thought this was interesting too, though, not just for baby boomers, Chris, I thought it was I thought it was fantastic for people in this fire movement, right? People that want to retire aggressively and retire early. Like creating this income stream should be really interesting to people in their 20s and 30s too. Do you think so? Absolutely. It's hard for them to think that far ahead though, yeah, I think. Right. Yeah, you know remember, you know when you and I were kids, it was tough for us to <laughs> to look out 5 years, much less 30 years. And uh but the ones that do they're all over it. They're so far ahead and uh, they'll have it made really. That's why I get super excited to hear about that. Cause I, I don't, some of these people that are in the fire movement when I was their age, to your point, I didn't care at all. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking all about it, which makes it awesome. When you say though, new ROI, and it's about creating consistent income, you say this in your book and I have to say immediately I smell annuity presentation coming, right? Mm-hmm. I immediately think that. And then I go through your book and I'm like, I don't really see I don't see the sexiness of an annuity here. Is annuity too easy or too expensive or, or uh, what? Yeah, it's, it's the exact same presentation. You know, we're talking about the same benefits that a lot of annuities do uh, that have either uh, guaranteed returns of some kind or a floor on the returns or they have, you know, some kind of income rider built on top of it. But the problem is with annuities is it ties your money up. Yeah. So, it's very difficult to get your money out of an annuity, and especially once you annuitize, you start getting that steady income stream. 
it's hard to turn it off and to get out of it, you know, from that point of view. And you're right, they're very expensive. Yeah. So you can build it on your own at a fraction of the cost. You know, we're talking if you're using low expense, you know, mutual funds and ETFs, less than 20 basis points, probably closer to 10. Well, it is interesting you say that. And I want to get back to that in a second, because we were talking about this on the show recently, that when you give your money to an insurance company, they're going to take your money, invest it. So why not invest it the way that they would invest it anyway? And then I pick up your book and and there it is something very similar. Where do I start then, Chris? Do I start with asset allocation? Do I start with my goal? Do I start with the right product mix? Where do I begin? For most people, the right thing is to buy either the S&P 500 or maybe the Wilshire 5000 if you want you know, some additional exposure to small caps. The easiest way to go, it gives um, pretty broad diversification. And if you have a stop loss built on top of it, you won't get hurt by it. Uh, and those products are extremely cheap right now. You know, you can get, uh, you know, a Vanguard 500 fund for, you know, about four points, four basis points. You know, I, I hear that part and everybody listening, or I hope most people listening now know what an exchange traded fund is. But when you say stop loss, there's a lot of people that don't understand what a stop loss is and how it works. Can you go through that? Cause this is really essential on your risk management strategy. It is. I'm glad you mentioned that, too, and asked the question because you're right. People that hear stop losses or have heard a little bit about them, they think of day traders. Anybody that's buying and selling stocks, you know, all day long and, you know, they think about that old 2% rule where I'm not going to lose any more than 2% on any position. So they have stops, which are built in cells, you know, for each of those positions. That's not what we're about. You know, when we're talking about a stop, I'm looking at big picture asset classes like the S&P 500. And when it drops by 10%, typically, that's where we would recommend, okay, shift out of those equities. That means there's something going on in the market that you can't diversify away necessarily. And you should go hide, you know, go into something safer, some kind of fixed income, you know, fund, you know, along those lines. So with us, you know, we don't want to trigger that stop. And if you're following a philosophy like this, you know, in a given 10 year period, you're hoping it, you only trigger that stop maybe once or twice. Yeah. When you do trigger that stop, though, here's the problem. As you know, it's not about just getting out. Right. Mm-hmm. It's then when the hell do I get back in? Are there economic okay. indicators? Does it have something to do with my goal? When do I decide to go back? Usually, I'll use a number as well. And for that number, uh, if you're looking at the S&P 500, I would use 15%. Okay. Uh, so when it, you have to continue to track it. And as the S&P 500, let's say, if it continues to go down, if it bounces off that bottom, whatever its low point happens to be, if it comes up 15% off that bottom, then buy back in. That's generally a rule that the trend has changed again. And... We always use probability. So that 10% rule, you know, we follow that because when the markets fall by fall by 10%, half the time it turns into a full-blown bear market where it loses 20% or more. So that's what we're trying to protect against. And the thing to remember is no strategy is going to be right all the time. And you don't have to be right all the time. In fact, I tell people, if you use that 10% rule, you're going to be wrong half the time. That means... 
half the time it was just a just a false alarm. You should have weathered the storm, you know, hunkered down, come out the other side. But the other half of the time, when it does turn into that full blown bear market, that's when you're glad you got out, and that's when the market dropped 20, 30, 40, 50 percent. And you show the that, buyback follows similar characteristics. Yeah, you show that clearly in your book, by the way, that when it bounces back, sure you lost a little, but man, when you got out, you avoided getting hammered. Just absolutely, absolutely getting hammered. Uh, and I like how you have numbers around those two. And instead of just, well, I feel, because as you know, what we hear all the time is, well, should I move out because I feel the market's high mm-hmm. and then move back in when I feel the market's better? I'm like, don't tr- you can't trust your feelings. You should be trusting numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I'm all about probabilities. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of comparing investing to Las Vegas and the house, but in some ways, it is the same. You know, if you think about it, you go to Las Vegas, they make money because they know they're going to win 51% of the time. That's all they need. And our process follows probabilities as well. Now you talk about fees every single time that you have stops, you know, you're going to pay fees to buy and fees to sell ostensibly in your, in your brokerage account. Maybe you've got like a Robin hood where you might not pay those, but I don't know if you can have stops in a Robin hood account. I don't know that. I don't know that, that, whether you can or not there. You know, I don't know that. Yeah. 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 That'd be interesting to look up. If only a way, Chris, I had a way, if only I had a machine that would help me look that up, but I'm way too, but I'm way too lazy to do that. But, but, but if we, if we move past that, how do you, you talk about fees being an important part of this too, and reducing your fees. Talk about that for a minute. Fees are the one thing that you can control as an investor, you know, that comes right off your top line. So, you know, if, if the market generates a 10% return and you're paying 2% in fees, that's 2% right off the top, you know, so anything you can do to reduce that and still keep your gross return at 10%, it doesn't seem like a lot. Most people kind of underestimate if they'll, they'll talk to an investment advisor and their fee might be, let's, let's just say it's just 1%. They think, oh, it's 1%. That's not very much money. Unfortunately, that compounds over time to be a huge dollar amount. And anything you can do to cut that down is a great benefit. It's interesting. It's not that I'm saying you shouldn't use a financial advisor and pay 1%. In most cases, they're very well worth it because they're providing a lot of services out there beyond investment management from financial planning, estate planning, whatnot. But if you can reduce that in any way, do it. And you should negotiate. These are negotiable fees. That's great advice. And it's it's interesting that you say that too, because we always talk about fees are an important drip. People make it the number one dragon. It's not the number one dragon. Behavior is. But fees <laughs> certainly one of the dragons that you should be fighting. My last question, Chris, I want to ask a little bit. We started off by talking about retirement and taking money out during retirement. Your book talks about this quite a bit. I didn't talk about it at all. I just talked about portfolio management do I stay invested that way during my retirement year? So do I keep my money in equities in the S&P 500, even though I might need the money next year, the year after, the year after that? That's a good question. And I do think you have to develop an asset allocation based on what your needs are. So if you take a look at the book, there is a table in there that has two factors built in. The income that you need, as well as your age. And we've basically done the math for you in terms of what percent you should have in stocks. The old rule of, you know, 100 minus your age and all that kind of stuff, throw that out the window. Uh, 
everybody is going to be a little different. And in today's world, you've got yields still, even though rates have gone up, yields still basically close to zero. So you need to build a portfolio around stocks to generate enough return to fund your retirement. Otherwise, you're not going to have a retirement. You know, you're not going to live on CDs anymore. I wish we had time to dive into the whole book. People are going to have to buy it to get the entire strategy. But the book is called Slash Your Retirement Risk, How to Make Your Money Last with a Simple, Safe, and Secure Investment Plan. Where do people get it, Chris? Amazon is probably the easiest place, as well as uh, Barnes & Noble if you want to go to your brick-and-mortar bookstore. Awesome. Great. And you know what? We'll have a link in our show notes too, for people that uh, uh, are walking the dog or out on your morning commute or wherever you might be. Chris Cook, thanks for hanging out with us and talking about slash and risk in retirement. Thank you. Have a great day. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm keeping this 7-Eleven extravaganza rolling. Did you know that the first Slurpees were sold under a licensing deal with the Icy Company in 1965? No extra charge for that nugget, because today we're going to salute the real heroes of 7-Eleven Day, the Slurpee Flavor Engineers. We're forever in your debt, men and women who work tirelessly behind the scenes so I can get my 2.30 a.m. Slurpee fix. We dedicate today's trivia to you. Just how many Slurpee flavors have been created throughout the history of this damn near perfect icy beverage? I'll have your answer right after I run down and grab my personal favorite flavor, Sour Apple. Thanks to our friends at Slack for supporting Stacky Benjamins. If you're not familiar with Slack, it's a collaboration hub for work, whatever work you do. In fact, if you just have one type of work, you're like us, where in my life, I'm not a part of just one team. I'm a part of a few teams. You're somebody like our engineer, Steve Stewart. Steve is a guy who's on many teams, so he's constantly flipping back and forth, sending files back and forth collaborating. Steve, in fact, will send us ideas for the Stacky Benjamin show. Hey, I thought if we put this sound effect in, it might be funny and we can very quickly go back and forth. With Slack, the right people in your team are always kept in the loop and the information they need is right at your fingertips. Teamwork on Slack happens in channels. So Steve, me, whoever, we can toggle conversations, keep them organized and information around projects, offices and teams are all in one place. And because everything you need to work on is in one place, it's faster and easier to get things done with Slack. Your team's better connected. You can find out more at slack.com. You know, I like the fact that there are so many apps to plug into my Slack. You can drag and drop file sharing that works with everything you lose, like Jira, Salesforce, Zendesk. We use Google Drive, uh, works with that. Screen Hero, we've used Appear In for uh, on-the-fly video meetings. In fact, Steve and I, often have video meetings over up here in makes it super easy. And because there's a mobile app with iOS and Android, as we're toggling things back and forth and juggling a lot right now here in the basement, that makes it really easy. It all syncs seamlessly. You can always pick up where you left off, no matter where you're at. Slack, where work happens, learn more at slack.com. That's slack.com. It's also brought to you by Magnify Money. If you haven't been to Magnify Money yet, it's stackybenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money. Average person who goes there saves $450 when they get the right checking account, the right savings account. Maybe you need to consolidate your student loans, consolidate the debt. 
go to 0% interest credit cards, whatever it might be. Magnify Money has it all. You know, it frustrates me that people will go to just a brick and mortar bank and say, what do you got? And then you end up with what you've got at one bank when you've got thousands of different banks, thousands of different products at Magnify Money. And it's just as quick and easy. Actually, it's quicker because you can do it all online. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money for more. Welcome back, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And earlier, I asked you this question. How many flavors of Slurpee has 7-Eleven made throughout the life of the drink? The answer? While different flavors and special promotions have come and gone over the years, there's been just over 300 flavors, ranging from Coke and Green Apple to some really crazy ideas like Full Throttle Blue Demon or Cold Fusion Freeze and bumblebee blast what do those even taste like oh my god i gotta try them all people see ya bumblebee blast i was off by a little bit by a lot of bit bumblebee blast i think is better than the zit pus blast (laughs) that that flavor just went nowhere it was horrible nope Zip bus blast. Gross. Yes, it is. It is gross, but it's very funny. Uh, hey, man, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and we'll tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Slurpees and Puerto Rico bonds. <laughs> They're like the one-two punch. Yes. The gift that keeps on giving. Or maybe not. Or maybe. Or maybe. In this case, it's actually your loved ones and your time. And that's why they've created a modern way, OG, to buy quality term life insurance. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. I love what they're doing over at Haven Life because they're making this process actually simple. Number one, their prices are affordable. Number two, all policies are issued by the parent company, Mass Mutual. So they've got this strength of a big company behind them. No waiting several weeks for a decision, super customer support, and more. But today, they're helping us talk about life insurance with our new friend, Mike. Say hi, Mike. Hey, Joe and OG. I just have a quick question. I've been taught so many times to not buy full life insurance, and I made that mistake. I've now cashed out the policy, and I'm ready to invest the difference. Make Dave Ramsey proud of me. Anyways, I'll have about 35000 that I can put into something. I was looking at doing a rental property, but my wife isn't too keen on that idea. So I thought maybe something more like Fundrise or Rich Uncles. And I just didn't know what your thought was on non-publicly traded REITs. Uh, if you think those are safe, a good idea, or if I should look at just a single family rental and go that route. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Mike. I want to start, though, OG, with an assumption that he made, which is that whole life insurance is bad. Let's be clear here. I have no problem with the right person buying a whole life policy and whole life policies on their own are not, are not bad. Often, For the 4,000th time, right? There are no bad tools. There's just bad applications of tools. Annuities don't suck. They suck for the wrong person. Permanent insurance doesn't suck. It sucks for the wrong person. Yeah, whole life insurance for the right person, it can be fantastic. I'd say that about once every, I'm going to say a whole, a, a, a straight out whole life policy, I would probably have a client once every five years purchase one of those. 
and then a more flexible, like a universal or variable universal life near the end of my career, it was maybe twice a year, you know, we'd have, we'd have those things that we'd use, but they are very specific applications. And by yeah. the way, in those applications, they were, a term policy would have sucked for them. Would have exactly. been horrible. It would have not worked the way you wanted it to. And by the way, if you're going to do what Mike did, which assuming that that Mike's making the right move here, I heard a voice in the background sounded like a young one. If he's just trying to protect kids, a lot of the time, if you're just trying to protect for a set amount of time, a term life insurance policy is the best way to go. But you got to make sure if you're going to follow Mike and do that, that you get the new policy first yeah, exactly before you get rid of the say. old one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you, you got to get the new one in place first because once you get rid of the old one, you can't get it back if all of a sudden you find out you're uninsurable for some reason or the costs are too prohibitive or something. I had somebody come to me seeing if I could help them fix it when another advisor helped them make that mistake, and that's not fixable. Yeah. Once it's Lawsuit. gone. Yeah, once it's gone, it's gone. So yeah. uh, bad stuff. But let's talk about his wife's not keen on real estate, so he's asking about... Fundrise, rich uncle, some of these uh, uh, I don't like being painted into the corner of uh, only having to pick between which one of these REITs do you like the best? Because there's other places that I would think of investing money. But but since he picked these, and we have to comment on these, you have to know what you're getting into with non-traded REITs, right? With non-public, non-traded REITs you are getting 15 years of who knows what. Now, you might get a good dividend yield the whole time. And at the end of the 10, 7, 10, 15 year period, you may get all your money back. Or you may get more of your money back. Or you may get 20% of your money back. Quite often, people look at the price per share because now they've got to report it annually and say, oh my gosh, I'm down 3%. They reprice this and I lost money on this. Or I'm down 10% or I'm down 70%. And there are some really bad ones out there that have just got clobbered in terms of their price per share, but they've been around so long that the dividends that they've paid have probably made the investment pretty even Steven, you know, maybe a little bit of a return. But my point is, is that you have to be okay with that money being out of your possession for 15 or more years because the liquidity on it is next to impossible. And you occasionally get third-party offers, right, where the companies will say, hey, we know that you have a 1,000 shares of ABC REIT. We'll buy it from you for three bucks. You could probably use the cash when the trading price is really eight, <laughs> right. you know. And that's just playing on your need for liquidity. So... I don't like non-traded REITs for this reason in particular, and I would much rather have an equity REIT, a REIT mutual fund, an equity REIT mutual fund, whatever. It's going to pay a little bit lower dividend yield, but I'm going to still get all the benefits of the liquidity, which is why it's going to pay a little bit less. And I still get some capital appreciation, that sort of stuff. If I had to pick between a non-traded and a publicly traded REIT, that's what I would do. I'm not an expert on individual properties, so... You know, you got to take that with a grain of salt. I like what some of these new fintech companies are doing, the way that they're using technology to put together some of these products so they're keeping the cost lower. I am going to pick on one of the two things that you said, Mike, because I know nothing about this company, by the way. I, I, I don't know what their experience is. I don't know much about them, but I've said this other places. I think Fundrise has incredibly 
incredibly deceptive advertising. And I'm going to tell you specifically what I don't like about Fundrise. And by the way, this has nothing to do with their management, has nothing to do with their product. It just has my, as OG would say, my spidey sense up going, yeah, I don't know. Whenever I see a chart that says engineered to earn you higher expected returns, and it shows a Fundrise portfolio that is, quote, engineered to earn more than everybody else, you're talking about some of the smartest people on earth work in finance. And these guys somehow have created a forward-looking chart. And a mentor of mine said a long time ago, beware charts and graphs. Right on their front page is a chart that shows the Fundrise portfolio being, quote, engineered to go up way faster than everybody else gets. So if I want to get superior returns, I clearly go here because these people can engineer it where other people can't. That, that drives me crazy. The second thing that, that drives me nuts about Fundrise is that it says, discover the first true alternative to investing in stocks and bonds. Not true. Nothing about that statement at the top of their page. If you just go to Fundrise.com, you see what I'm talking about? Not true at all. There have been plenty of alternatives to investing in stocks and bonds. And then I go down and I see a chart that says it's engineered to do better. I'm not going there. And, and that has nothing to do with- Because you're reading the fine print, but, but you're saying that a lot of people are going to look at the big chart and go, well, this is way better than that other blue chart that's next to the orange chart. Oh, look at this. Look at, this is fantastic. I'm a guy that got to look at these, uh, speaking of what Mike was talking about earlier with insurances- you know, we were having a discussion in our basement Facebook group about insurances and our friend Rocky from the Richer Soul podcast, cool, smart guy, said, get an illustration, right, of what the policy has done. But what we, you and I also know and financial advisors know is advisors can also illustrate what the policy is going to do. And those illustrations, when I was in the business, we're usually a load of crap. People would yep. sell these policies based on, I would see these people selling these policies based on the market was going to do 12%. This is in like 1998, 1999. Then of course we get 2000, 2001, 2002 right after that. And because- Had the, to lower them to 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like people get- Better not show 12 anymore, but <laughs> let's show 10.5. This really looks great if we get 10 and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a life insurance policy that's going to earn 12%. And uh, all I can think of is the the Dr. Phil. So just just to hear me clearly, I don't know anything about Fundrise. I don't know what they do. I just read their front page and I read something that is not true at the top. And then I see a graph that's forward looking that says it's engineered to give me superior returns. I can't invest there. Yeah. Marketing at its at its uh, worst, I guess. Absolutely, at its, its worst. Its, it's I would love worst. to. I've had enough people ask me about Fundrise. I feel bad every time I every time I say this, and I wish that we had a bigger platform than two people listening to this podcast, where they might hear Fundrise. You guys probably have a badass product. You probably have a phenomenal product. You don't have to say this crap on your front page. You don't have to do that to sell this. We've talked to plenty of these people that compete with Fundrise that don't do that. Uh, I do like the platform Roofstock, right? If we were going to stick to the rental property stuff, I like how they kind of take all of the calculations and yeah. all that sort of stuff out of it. And they've got some pros and cons of their stuff too. But well, um, and to be clear, and to be clear about Roofstock, because people that don't follow the show, a lot are going, "Oh, I see." 
you're going to your sponsor. Well, two things. Roofstock doesn't sponsor the show anymore and yeah, hasn't, we're, hasn't yeah, for yeah, months. But we had asked them to sponsor the show because we dig Roofstock. And yeah. because, because Gary Beasley doesn't have to lie to you to get your money. It's just a different, yeah, it's a different platform. But um, like we always say with these questions, right, at the end of the day, we don't have enough information to make a really strong, educated opinion about it. But make sure you understand, Mike, what the time frame is of your goal. And if it's shorter than, you know, 15 or 20 years, not sure you want to do non-publicly traded stuff. I'm not sure that you want to do individual rental at that point either, you know, because. Well, because individual, individual rentals, even less liquid. Individual well, rentals yeah. are awesome, but they're way less. I mean, you, you can't rip off a bathroom because you have a short-term money need. Yeah. So anyways, take that, yeah. file it away where you put all the rest of our advice. Dude, usually you get on a rant. I was rolling oh, there, man. fired there. I was, did you see me like just edge away from the table? <laughs> <laughs> just rolling away backwards. I'm like, okay. It just doesn't, you know, it's just, well, I'll get off it, but it's not. Tell that, us how you really think. That's yes, right. I wish, I wish somebody could feel how I felt. Right. I'm, no, I got the sense of it. Your face was all red. You're like that anger from inside out. I mean, how often do you see that anymore? You just don't see it that much. And I don't know, like you said, marketing is worse. Thanks for the question, Mike. And we're going to send you a Haven Life sponsored greatest money show on earth, Stacking Benjamins t-shirt code from our intern, Caden, sending those things out. We also get letters down here. Doug is holding his head. I, I think Doug has found a way to get like six of these Slurpees. You see, did, you, did you see him? Well, with the Groucho Marx masks. <laughs> he just, He's like, hello, I'm here for my free Slurpee. Uh, you you look, uh, no, I'm not that guy. I'm not that yeah. guy. Uh, this question comes to us from Wallace. Wallace says, two rollover IRAs from 401ks from past employers totaling about $65,000. I'm not currently able to contribute to my company's 401k as the company's 401k plan fails discrimination testing. I'm interested in possibly setting up a backdoor Roth, but I understand that because I have the two rollover IRAs that there would be tax implications for any conversion due to the pro rata rule. Obviously, this is a subjective question, but would it be worth it in the long run to take the tax hit now and convert my rollover IRAs to backdoor Roths? Thanks in advance. It is subjective, Wallace, but we can give you some of the things that we think about because you didn't give us things like your age and your time frame, which I think are going to be important here. But OG, what do you think? Or current income, tax right. bracket. Yeah, good point. All that sort of stuff. Here's something he didn't mention. What about doing uh, after-tax contributions to your 401k? You're precluded from doing the pre-tax, right, because of discrimination testing. Maybe you can still do the after-tax contributions. And then flip those? And then you can do that once a year to a Roth. You're going to pay a little tax on what happened throughout the year, but uh, but you can go right from after-tax 401k if they'll allow you to do it, and then go right to the Roth. As far as the conversion goes, a couple of thoughts. Firstly, with the new tax law, it does make it more interesting, right? Because tax brackets have gone down. A lot of people are going to get kind of a double whammy in terms of their tax bracket. They're going to have lower rates and they're also going to have higher deductions because the standard deduction went up, you yeah. know? So, so a lot of people are going to be saving some pretty good money on taxes. So it could make a conversion pretty exciting. The tax law also changed how we normally recommend how to do these. 
because it got rid of the option to recharacterize that conversion, now it makes the most sense to wait till toward the end of the year to make this decision because you'll have almost all of your tax information in hand by then. And so what could make sense would be to kind of fill up that tax bracket. Like let's say, for example, you're in the 12% bracket right now and you've got a little bit of room to go before the 22. So it may make sense to fill up that tax bracket. So let's say that you're in the 12% bracket right now and you've got a ways to go before you get to the 22% bracket in your taxable income. Maybe at the end of the year, you figure that out and then convert just that amount, right? And so so that amount is now going to be taxed at 12%. Here's the biggest thing. You have to have the cash available to pay the taxes because it really backfires if you pay the taxes out of the conversion. You almost eliminate all the benefits of doing that, right? Because you're going to have to write a check to the government at that point. Right. Likewise, you might be in the 24% bracket right now and you got a ways to go before you fill it up to the 32, you know, so you can get a lot of money tax uh, taken out at 24. So you're really betting on where do tax rates go and where is your income going to go and where are your assets going to go and what's your distribution look like in retirement over the next period of time, whatever that is. You just kind of make some assumptions on that. Like we've talked about before, and I like to think that it's best to have a little bit of both. So some pre-tax and some some after-tax stuff and let it go. Fantastic. Wallace, thanks for the question. Kind of a technical one there, huh? I didn't get to yell and scream and no. stomp my feet like you did. but <laughs> We try to limit that to once per show, once, if once not per episode. once per week. Uh, if you've got a question for the show, head to stackybenjamins.com and you'll see at the top of the page, questions for the show, click on that link and we're happy to answer your question on air. Hey, that's going to do it for today, guys. By the way, thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this show. And by the way, thanks to Chelsea Brennan, a writer at Forbes, for including us in a big list, OG. Nine financial podcasts you need to be listening to. And congratulations to the shows on that list. Some fantastic shows. We were very happy to be very close to the top, actually. Second one down behind our good friend, Farnoosh Tarabi. And then Paula Pant, who appears here just about every Friday on that list. Our friends Jonathan and Brad over at Choose FI, who we're doing a meetup with, by the way, in Philadelphia. Lots of, we talked about Rocky Lovani from Richer Soul Podcast. He's going to be at our meetup in Philly. Eric Rosenberg from Personal Profitability is going to be there. Andrew Wang is going to be there from Inspired Money. Uh, we're going to have Gwen Mertz, who was just on the show a couple of weeks ago before our break from the Fire Drill Podcast. She's going to be there. Lots of your favorite. Oh, uh, Rich Jones from, I just found this out, Rich Jones from Paychecks and Balances is going to be there as well. So lots this is the of, one that I'm not invited to? Yeah, you are. You've been invited like 57 times. I love Maybe how I'll you always up. play. Yeah, I'm not invited. Yeah. Maybe I'll show up. I'll crash the party. But look, Somebody's got to pay the bill, I guess, right? Might as well be OG. <laughs> Either uh, number one, uh, get on the stacker. That is our newsletter, and we'll have a link there, stackybedjamins.com forward slash stacker to get the stacker newsletter. Or number two, our closed Facebook group or our page. If you want to join the basement, our Facebook group where we have a lot of fun, stackybedjamins.com forward slash basement, or the Stacky Benjamins page is facebook.com forward slash iStackBenjamins. But it's Philadelphia, Yards Brewing, July 22nd, that's a Sunday night, 6 p.m., 
lots of financial podcasters in town because the podcast movement conference kicks off the next day. And sounds so, like you're going to need to take Monday off <laughs> if you come out to this thing on Sunday night. It's going to be a, you know, you get a bunch of finance nerds together. We get crazy. Spreadsheets and we get crazy. What's co- crazy. What's HP cool 12. is looking at it now, we have 85 people interested and that looks like uh, about 40 people that are coming. So, so far. Gonna have a nice I thought you were going to say we have 85 people interested and about six people <laughs> confirmed. <laughs> That's And they're all podcasters. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. All right. And lastly, uh, OG's taking clients. So if you have a need for better financial planning and financial planner in your corner, head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash letter O, letter G, and that leads you to his calendar. And you can talk about getting your financial house in order. All right. Let's stick a fork in this one. We are done. Thanks a ton. Doug, what should we have learned today, man? Of course, Joe. Always here to help out. Why don't you get back to arguing with OG about who gets that three-day-old chili dog? And I'll tell everybody what they should have learned today. First, take some advice from Chris Cook and think about your investment risk management plan. Do you even have one? Second, dealing with a debt collector Ask questions about their credentials before giving your information to anyone. But the big takeaway, don't let those kids standing around the Slurpee machine have all the fun. If necessary, just tell them your pal Doug said that you're a VIP and deserve to go first. Trust me, what could go wrong? Special thanks to Chris Cook for hanging out with us in the basement today. You'll find Slash Your Retirement Risk wherever books are sold. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm wondering if KY Jelly is actually made in Kentucky. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests, in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Hey, how come I always have to say the amazing Steve Stewart? That Richie kid's pretty cool, and we don't add any adjectives before his name. What about me? How come I'm never the incomparable neighbor Doug, or the unimaginably cool neighbor Doug, or even the unfathomably intelligent neighbor Doug? Welcome to the After Show. This today is a special edition of the After Show OG because we had a competition on our Facebook page 
pull that up, you'll see that we've been having a competition in our basement Facebook group because today is National Pet Photo Day. And our podcast producer, Richie, has created this contest, which it's going to be a fun one. Not only is the winner going to get a copy of uh, Chris Cook's book, Slash Your Retirement Risk. Thanks, by the way, to Chris for coming on. But we're also going to put together a prize pack specifically for you. I'll ask you a little few questions about you. And um, normally, when we used to do these more often, they were usually around $100 worth of stuff. So sometimes they're board games. Sometimes they're stuff that has to do with things that you like. Sometimes it's financial stuff. Uh, all depends on you. But generally, we, we set a budget of around $100 of stuff that you will enjoy. So we're having this contest for National Pet Photo Day, and it's photos of your pet and money. So Melissa... <laughs> Melissa has one with uh, with her dog. You look at this first one. Dog looks like maybe a beagle and says, paws off my money, buddy, and has five Benjamins and uh, the dog's got hand on the Benjamins. That one's pretty cool. I have to make it bigger on my screen here. I've just, I used the small. The second one comes to us from Aaron and says, our Boston Terrier, Miss Lola, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty, <laughs> and has Lola with uh, a bunch of 20s, just an absolute ton of 20s. And, uh, and I love the brass knuckles. Uh, that one's pretty with good. The emergency too. fund all spread out there. Yeah. Yeah. 20, 40, 40, 60, you're not going near that emergency fund with those brass knuckles not. there. Okay. No. And then uh, Kurt took his cat and stuck it in a poster of the Wolf of Wall Street and called it the Cat of Wall Street. And uh, Kurt says it's his first day on Wall Street. Give him some time. That's pretty good. Okay. Yep. Nice job, Kurt. Our friend Paul from Cash Crunch Games has a couple entries. Uh, one is his cat, and he says one of your favorite discussions. What do you mean, my <laughs> What do you mean, my Bitcoin's fallen? And the cat's got these wide eyes. The next one is his cat lounging. This is another cat. Uh, uh, we're going to call Pat Paul uh, Vasey the cat lady. Uh, passive income is not overrated. This is cats lounging. And uh, uh, let's do one more here. Actually, let's do a couple more here. We've got one from Janine. This is a cool one. It says, what financial independence can bring you the ability to foster and care for special needs dogs and enjoy frequent nature walks with them? And there is a dog with three legs. And uh, Janine's out for a walk with the dog. The dog has a special roller in place of yep, that's cool. one of the back legs. That is cool. Everybody else goes for funny. Janine goes for the heartstrings. Yes. And then uh, Daryl here, Daryl says, <laughs> Daryl's got a dog standing off to the side saying, but that's my food, while the cat is clearly in the dog's dish eating and says, the tax meowing cometh. <laughs> paying the pound of flesh to Caesar. So there's our entries, OG, here for National Pet Photo Day. You're the judge. Oh, come on. I got to be the judge? Why don't you uh, give me your top two? Okay. I'm Let's see if there's any matching. I think our friends here are so creative. Man, I really like Melissa's, but I think that Aaron's brass knuckles are every bit as funny as Melissa's and funnier. And you got to go with the heartstrings. You got to go with Janine's. So I think it comes down to either Aaron and the brass knuckles, Miss Lola, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty, or Janine's uh, 
walking special needs dogs. I like the tax meown cometh. Daryl's. That one's pretty good. <laughs> nice play on words. Bitcoin one's pretty funny too. Do we have enough? Can we can we pick two winners? I think we can. I think we should. We had some All great right. ones here. Okay. I'm with you on Janine. I think that one's you gotta you gotta go with the heartstrings. Yep. Uh, and then which one's your favorite funniest one? Oh man, the brass knuckles versus uh the text. <laughs> I think th- I think you're right. I think we got to go with the taxes. Sorry, Aaron. Aaron, very Tax close. Meown cometh. Tax meown. Nice job, Daryl. All right. Yeah. You know what? I'm gonna let you guys email me if I don't hear from you by early next week. I'll I'll ping you guys in the Facebook group. But uh, just email me, Joe at Stacky Benjamins, or send me a note on Facebook to make sure that you heard this. And before we ruin the surprise, and then we'll talk about getting your prize packs together. Thanks everybody in the basement for participating. That was, that was a lot of fun. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's military appreciation month and we are giving out shout outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend, OG who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and best careers for military spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.